turn in the back of our hymnals tonight to look at Article 27 of the Belgic Confession, page 865. We'll be looking at that article concerning the Holy Catholic Church and then turning in God's Word to 1 Kings. Children, where is 1 Kings? I'm challenging you tonight. Where is 1 Kings? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus... Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, I think I've gone too far. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st Kings. That's where we're turning tonight, 1st Kings chapter 19. It's good for us to know where these books are, to know where God speaks of these particular matters, and the church is the matter before us tonight. We're looking at... All of the forces that stand against the church, well, we don't look at, we're not going to look at all of them tonight, but we're going to look at some of the challenges tonight as we think about this rather, I don't know, ordinary doctrine, we might say, something that we all know about, but something that we cannot let go of. The Holy Catholic Church, the church in the West is, is in trouble. I think we can recognize that. Surveys reveal a lack of commitment to key biblical teaching and that there is apathy and apathy to important practices. Society only takes note of the church when it wants to identify scandal or to point out failure in the church. Otherwise, it sees the church as irrelevant. And uh, we wonder, is the church uh, passe? Is it something that's, that's no longer uh, important? Well, it's not the first time in history that the people of God have been under attack or have been small in number or weak in faith. In fact, the church is often in that condition, even as in the days of Elijah, as we're going to see in Article 27. And I want to read that article now, and then a bit later we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 19. We'll read it together, 1 Kings 19. But first then, Article 27, the Belgic Confession, if you have it there in front of you. We believe and confess one single Catholic or universal church, a holy congregation and gathering of true Christian believers, awaiting their entire salvation in Jesus Christ, being washed by his blood and sanctified and sealed by the Holy Spirit. This church has existed from the beginning of the world and will last until the end, as appears from the fact that Christ is eternal King who cannot be without subjects. This holy church is preserved by God against the rage of the whole world, even though for a time it may appear very small in the eyes of men, as though it were snuffed out. For example, during the very dangerous time of Ahab, the Lord preserved for himself 7,000 men who did not bend their knees to Baal. And so this holy church is not confined, bound, or limited to a certain place or certain persons, but it is spread and dispersed throughout the entire world, though still joined and united in heart and will, in one and the same spirit, by the power of faith. Beloved in Christ, how confident are you in the future of the church? I'm not talking about any denomination. I'm talking about the bride of Christ, the institutional church. Will the church survive? Is what we're doing here tonight irrelevant? Is this a practice of a bygone era? 
a holdover? Is gathering together to hear God's word proclaimed, preached, and outmoded practice? Well, the world wants you to think so. The world being rudderless, as it were, and led by the devil, being convinced that this is outmoded. But what really is behind it is the devil's concern for the power of the word as it goes forth. For God's people as they gather, as they're built up in the faith, once for all entrusted to the saints. And so he wants to see it ended. He wants, it to, see, he wants to see it go extinct. But we recognize that God builds his church and he builds his people uh, through the gathering of the saints. I want us to go back a few years to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. God's people came to believe that real power was in having a king like all the other nations. Really, they wanted their power to be vested in someone that they uh, could, could go before them into their battles, their wars. And today we see that. We think of political figures. We say, I want to get behind him. I want to get behind her. I want to get behind those people. They're the ones that are really going to win the day. They're the ones that we have to put all of our uh, money and effort behind. Well, we recognize from the Word that our hope, our everlasting hope is not found in political leaders. It's not found in men or women. It's not found on earth. It's found in heaven. Israel was to be a picture of a nation, a people fully submitted to the King, even the Lord. But she had become like all the other nations, rejecting him and demanding a king like all the other nations. First Samuel chapter 8, the kings that she received were a mixed bag, and yet God continued to speak to the people. He sent prophets to them, though they became more scarce, even while the people became more intertwined with the idols of the nations. By the time Ahab arrived on scene, things were really bad. We would say dark. And things had devolved. There was a lot of syncretism, this mixture of religious practice, and really it became a paganism. Israelites, yeah, they followed the Old Testament ceremonies, and they said, well, we're still God's people because we still keep the practices that God sets before us. So that makes us God's people. But in reality, their hearts were being led astray. They were worshiping idols. Their very queen was a worshiper of Baal, as we read in 1 Kings chapter 16, Queen Jezebel. God did not forsake them. He was not silent. He sent a prophet, Elijah, to call them to repent and return to him, though things looked bleak. And when Elijah confronted the false prophets of Baal, they numbered 450, and he stood alone. A very dramatic scene there on Mount Carmel. We see it in chapter 18 where he stands and he says, Let us see who the one true God is. He who answers by fire, he is that one true God. God revealed himself there on that mountain and the false prophets fled. But the spiritual conviction of, in Israel was yet weak. Let's see how that is illustrated as we look at chapter 19 together. Listen to the reading of God's own holy word. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Elijah had killed the prophets of Baal and how he had killed them with the sword. 
Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. You see, dear people, the world speaks to us. The world comes and says, here is the truth. This is how it's going to go for what you have done. The world speaks, but God also speaks. Let's continue. Then Elijah was afraid and he arose, verse 3, and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, here's the other side of the story, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And God and he said, Go out and stand in the mount, on the mount between or before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord is not in the wind. And after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. The spiritual condition in Israel was very poor, as I said, and we see that here because though the people had proclaimed that God was the Lord, we see that chapter 18, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. When Jezebel, the present uh, ruler there in Israel, says, I am going to take your life, Elijah, no one stands up to her. No one is ready 
to stand in front of her. They lack all conviction. Quote came to mind this week as I was thinking about that particular context, and I don't know if I have this quote exactly right. The source of it even is not altogether clear, so I can't really give the source, but it's all it takes for evil to advance is for good people to do nothing. Or we might say it this way, all it takes for evil to advance is when good people, those with the truth, those with the, with the, the content that is necessary to establish a firm foundation for them to, to do nothing, to, to not repeat what is called for, how we are to live. Well, we have to ask ourselves, what kind of conviction then is there in, in, in such people if, if it doesn't lead to action? And, and that's what we, we find here. We see Elijah going out and in, in, in taking action, but so many of the people, while they speak of this and they say, the Lord, he is God, when it comes to, to resisting Jezebel, just standing up for the truth, they're silent. Now, when we talk about speaking for truth, the world says, oh, you're, in, you're insurrectionists. That's what you are. You want to destroy the world order. You want to destroy the authorities. And they, and they get us to think, oh, no, what are we trying to do? We don't want chaos. And, 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 and we maybe take a step back or two. But what we're, calling, what we're being called to do is not to be insurrectionists, but to stand with the truth. Or to stand up for what is right and, if necessary, to suffer for doing good. We ought not to be surprised when we suffer for doing good, when we are maligned, when we are attacked, when we are called all manner of names that we don't find so nice. Israel was spiritually weak at this point. Numbers really didn't mean a whole lot. They had numbers in the hundreds of thousands, perhaps, in that, in that area. But true believers were hard to find. When Elijah saw what happened as Jezebel made this threat, he, he said, I, I, he saw what happened. He says, I, I have to go from here. I, I, I think I'm the only one left. He says that several times, and we know that feeling of shrinking numbers. We can understand Elijah's response, but we have something that Elijah didn't have. We have the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have his words to us in Matthew chapter 16, where he says to his disciples and to us today by, uh, by extension, that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we we have this word as the Lord Jesus Christ dies and then rises again and prepares to ascend into heaven. But before he does, he says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and baptize the nations in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is the eternal King. I, those, those words in the confession are so powerful and so uh, uh, so vivid. The church has existed from the beginning of the world and will last until the end, as appears from this fact that Christ is eternal King who cannot be without subjects. Now, that seems to the world to be a very arrogant statement, but it is a very true statement, and it causes those who stand against him to shake, to fear. 
He is king eternally and cannot be without subjects. We have no excuse for an Elijah complex, but we still have doubts. What are some of those reasons for those doubts? Let's look at some of those tonight. First, size or numbers. We have doubts about the church, the church's survival at times because the church is small in number. We need to hear what is said in this article about the church. It says this, this holy church is preserved by God against the rage of the whole world, even though for a time it may appear very small in the eyes of men, as though it were snuffed out. And then many examples could have been given from Scripture, but it says, for example, during the very dangerous time of Ahab, the Lord preserved for himself 7,000 men who did not bend their knees to Baal. That is what it means when it says they did not kiss Baal. They did not show him honor and worship. We're there in verse 18. The strength of the church, the hope of true believers is not in numbers, but in the head of the church, in Christ, who is eternal king, having all authority, power to build and protect his bride. Well, secondly, the mission of the church, and I want to spend a little more time in this, in this, uh, on this point, because th- this is, th- there's a lot of confusion today about what is the mission of the church. It, it's fairly clear, but in our uh, response to the culture, we sometimes waver because we're, we're, we're looking to, to hold on to an influence in the culture that was never promised to us. I think that's really what's behind it when those uh, speak of wanting to, to uh, uh, do things differently. It's as though they're trying to, to keep a respectability in a culture which is increasingly turning from the Lord. And we would expect that as a culture increasingly turns from the Lord, that they would increasingly then turn against the church as well. Not to surprise us at all. But what is the mission of the church? Well, let me start by saying this. It is oftentimes uh, brings doubt to our minds because the church is, is uh, uh, often hurting itself with friendly fire. It shoots itself, as it were, when it has these discussions and it labels this one or that one uh, as not a part of the church. Now, there are things, as we're going to see a bit later, that would place uh, individuals and certain churches out of the bounds of orthodoxy. But we ought to understand that there's nothing wrong with iron sharpening iron, that we have these conversations, that we think about what does it look like to be faithful as we speak the truth today. A lot of that conversation is not had or it's not healthy, and, and so we, we doubt what is the future. But what is the mission of the church as we're, as we're in, this, uh, in this place? Well, it's word and deed. That's what we recognize from Scripture. We live side by side in gospel ministry. We proclaim the truth about humanity and we proclaim the wonderful provision for sin found in Christ. We are sinners, but God has provided a Savior. We must turn to him. We acknowledge the present effects of sin upon individuals also, and we seek to to help those in need as we are able. What does it say of Christ in Matthew chapter 4? That Christ came preaching and teaching and healing disease and affliction. Now, we don't have that same power. We don't have that same uh, skill. But we are to follow after Christ 
to have a word and deed ministry, a ministry of mercy, taking the word, the truth to those who are hurting and also showing mercy and deed. There are huge questions surrounding how the church organizes her mission. That's a big discussion that isn't really germane to the article here. And yet I want to say a few things about that. And it's under this heading that we are to be balanced in word and deed. One does not outweigh the other. If we are to reflect upon this, the word leads to that deed, and the deed always looks back to the word and says, now what is it that we are to be doing? How is it that this is showing, magnifying the Lord? Sometimes we wonder, what's the future of the church? It seems that the church is missing in the world. Times of persecution and trial, the church must not disappear or go into a holy huddle, keeping to itself and practicing faith within its four walls. The world would like to have us do that and just say, well, you can do whatever you want in here, but just don't take the faith, don't take that word outside of these walls. And yet Jesus says, no, go and make disciples. He doesn't say stay and, and huddle. He says go. So we wrestle with these things, and we acknowledge, and this is what we need to keep in front of us, and that our brothers and sisters in lands where there is greater suffering can teach us that we will suffer for this. First Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4, Peter talks about uh, what it looks like to live as a Christian in a world that is at odds with the faith. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. We remember that we are to go out, even if it means suffering, and it will. There's nothing in here in this article, in our confession, that says, well, if we are beginning to suffer, then we're doing something wrong. In fact, I would argue that the Scriptures make clear that it's when we're faithful that we will suffer more. That ought not to lead us to doubt the church's survival, but rather lead us to depend all the more upon God who keeps his church, preserves the church. The early Christians were not embraced with open arms. There was much resistance to truth and kindness. It didn't keep them from showing kindness or to speaking truth. The culture needed to be transformed, and transformation isn't easy. Jesus talks about dying to self and living to God. That therein is the heart of man's rebellion. He doesn't want to die to self and to turn to God. And so there's going to be conflict when those kingdoms come in contact with each other. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of self. Today we see how Christianity is waning. One pastor has put it this way, we, we've come, Christendom gave us this, this era when it was unthinkable not to go to church. It was just expected, something that we were expecting, that people would just come to church. They knew it as good. 
We've now entered a time when it's, when he says, when it's unthinkable and increasingly, it's a slow process, but it's unthinkable to go to church. And this is in the West. This is in the, what we have known in, in decades past as the Christian West. Or people say, I'm not going to go there. Those people are, are bigots. Those people are intolerant. Those people are, are unloving. Those people don't care for me. They only care for their institution, for, for themselves. And that is where the challenge then comes in. How are we faithful witnesses? How do we go out? How do we show that, that uh, uh, they, how do we show Christ to them? Church grows as the word goes out about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we start by relationship building and showing compassion. doesn't mean we endorse their sins or approve of sinful lifestyle, but it means treating others as image bearers of God with respect, with dignity. I don't know who said it or where it was said, and, and, and maybe it's a little crass, but uh, it was said this way, let, let it not be said of Christians they treat their pets better than they treat their neighbor. And, and we need to think about that. Well, the mission of Christians is to speak the truth, and in an age that hates the truth more and more, friendships with those who are resisting the truth are, are wanting to see that we really care about them, not just getting them to accept what we say. Will the church survive well as the church is faithful to its call, as it's faithful to following after Christ who went to sinners and said, now come and follow me, and we see the way that we must go while not forsaking the truth. And that's, there's so much that could be said about that, but we'll, we'll leave it there. There are signs of awareness of the challenge of reaching a post-Christian culture. There's awareness in all the books that are being, many of the books that are being written today. Uh, people on both sides saying, well, the church won't survive because we don't speak the truth anymore. Others on this other side say, well, the church won't survive because we're not doing the deeds, the Christian deeds, showing Christ to people. And we need to think of how those go hand in hand. God might be glorified in how others come to see the truth and they see it lived out lovingly by us. In taking steps to reach those outside the church, we cannot compromise the truth or, or let it go altogether. I don't know if you know this, but it's 100 years since uh, J. Gresham Machen wrote his book, Christianity and Liberalism, back in 1923. And so there's a lot of hubbub surrounding that particular book. And in that book, it's still very relevant for today. He, what he's showing is that there's, there's Christianity and there's liberalism. Those are two different religions. It's not, it's not liberal Christianity and it's not conservative Christianity. It's those, those that are in that camp of liberalism are, are, are not holding to the truth. He's saying you've got to recognize those are not the same. And our our tradition, our history, I think, is, is, if we could say, put it this way, we don't want to be imbalanced, but sometimes we, we uh, focus, our focus is on the truth and, and maintaining the truth. 
And so we gravitate to books like, at least I do, I gravitate to books like that. I want the truth to be held up, not to, to scrap it and say, well, we'll just come over here and, and relate to these people and, and, and just let them take us wherever they see their needs to be greatest. I was uh, looking over that book again this week and, and recognizing how relevant it is for today. And then in God's providence, which I'm firmly convinced uh, was the, the reason, I, a troubling article came across my email of a mainline Protestant church in Minnesota where the pastor led her congregation in a new creed called the Sparkle Creed. And... Uh, I don't even want to read it here. It's so horrendous. Uh, You can well imagine all of the progressive elements of the moral revolution in this particular creed. Um, God is, it's so interesting that all of the talking points, everything where where God is is contrary to our culture today, that's exactly what they target. God is non-binary, of course. That's important today. And God has plural pronouns. Of course, we've got to get that in there. And Jesus is the son of two dads. And, uh, well, it gets worse from there. And it reminded me again of how much our culture wants to have conversation when it comes to changing what we've held for decades. But when anyone comes and says, I think we need to stop and remember what the past has to teach us. Oh, no, 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 no. You're not part of this conversation. Progressivism is defined as destroying the past and charting a new future. That's progress. Be careful how you hear that word. We're not against progress. (laughs) But when it is destroying the foundations, then we must... Stand on the word. When the church is so confused about God, as this lady and her congregation are confused, as they were confessing it with her, it it can't serve the world. The world will not be served by a church that is so confused about the message. A church that lets go of biblical teaching cannot offer, if you want to look at it a different way, a rudder to, a, to an aimless ship. It's, 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 what's going to happen is the, 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 the culture is going to shipwreck up on the rocks, and that's what we see happening. There is such confusion that it, the culture is breaking apart. And we say, well, is the, is the church going to survive? It just seems like the future is progressive. The future is Sparkle Creed. Well, that wasn't really the words in Queen Jezebel's mouth, but that was what she was saying to Elijah. You know what the truth is? Here's the truth. You're going to die. You're going to be. You're going to be forgotten. You're not going to endure. And God came to Elijah and said, "Oh, you will endure. You will endure because I will preserve you. Will the church survive? It most certainly will, but not because we're so faithful." Because God is preserving the church. That's our humble confession. Because it's what God says, and He cannot lie. And He will not be defeated. We cannot become proud in our confession, 
but we cannot step back from the word. The point isn't become proud in your confession, become arrogant in the way you speak. But the call is to be faithful. We must not forget our confession, our faith, which is grounded upon God's word. Children, that's why it's so important when I, when I uh, uh, think about church school and I think about challenging you, where are those books of the Bible found? Already now, you need to be learning those things. Because someday you're going to be the ones telling others. I know you don't think you're going to get old, but you will, older, quickly. And then you'll have to tell them where the truth is found and why it's important. So it's important that together, the older and the younger, we're standing together in the truth of God's word. Well, I said that was going to be the longest or the longer point. The third, third reason we doubt uh, the survival of the church is because <clears throat> sometimes we, we think the church is only that which is in our backyard. And we think, well, there's, uh, we look around and we say, there's, oof, they're, they're, they're kind of just falling by the wayside. They're being shuttered. They're, you go to Europe and all of the cathedrals are now museums or mosques or some other such thing. And you wonder, what's, what's going on here? Art museums. And, and we kind of wonder in the West... But the church has existed from the beginning of the world and will last until the end. Listen to what, how the confession captures the teaching of God's word. The Holy Church is not confined, bound, or limited to a certain place or certain persons, but it is spread and dispersed throughout the entire world, though still joined and united in heart and will, in one and the same spirit by the power of faith. Let's not forget that God is building his church throughout time for his glory. We must pray for and we must support the work of gospel proclamation, gospel endeavor, or driving us to gospel endeavor here and abroad. To be involved in that. To see that the church is growing, perhaps more in the southern hemisphere at the present time and nations that were previously closed like China and Iran and Afghanistan North Korea, we recognize that one day we will see brothers and sisters before the throne of God with us, <clears throat> worshiping our holy God. What do we confess about the church? Coming back to the beginning of that article, we've kind of looked at the articulation of it, the summation of it, but now we come back to the beginning. We believe and confess one single Catholic or universal church, a holy congregation and gathering of True Christian believers awaiting their entire salvation in Jesus Christ, being washed by his blood and sanctified and sealed by the Holy Spirit. We devote our time in church planting, in corporate life, and weekly worship because the doctrine of the church is so central to the Christian faith. God says, We'll build my church. We believe in one church. Christ is not divided, we read in Ephesians. He came and died for his people, the church. There's one body, one spirit, how we're sealed and how we're kept in the one and the same spirit by the power of faith as we see the end of that article. We believe the church is a holy congregation. God sets apart his people to be holy, a dwelling place for his spirit now, today. We hear those words where it says Jesus is washing us Washing us with the word. That's important. And we ought to then call people to come and to hear the word and to be, to be cleansed by the word. 
There's a holy aspect to the church. Yes, it's a mixed multitude. We don't know that everyone who's in the church is by their presence automatically saved. We won't know that until the end. It's not that we have absolute certainty about who is and who isn't saved. But we know that one day Christ will reveal his holy bride and that we're washed by his word now so that we might be ready to be presented to him without fault when he comes. We believe a Catholic church, small c, the universal church found throughout the world, throughout time, not just now, not just here, faithful to God by his gracious work. To be a part of this church doesn't mean we have to be perfect or of a certain group. Be part of the church. We're called to profess faith in the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To acknowledge that we're sinners saved by grace, waiting our entire salvation in Jesus Christ, being washed by his blood, sanctified and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Is that how we think about it? Or do we often think of locations? Or do we think about buildings closing? We need to listen closely. The church, as we're talking about her now, the bride of Christ, which will be kept to the end. And the church matters. To be a part of the church matters. Not to ignore the importance of being here, that we might be built up from the youngest to the oldest, encouraged so that we might know that we're not alone as Elijah went away from the people of God The Lord reminded him, well, you're not looking in the right place. There are still 7,000 who have not bowed the knee. God has planned the church and promised his redeeming and protecting power over her. And we're blessed to be a part of Christ's church. It's not a position of pride. Our presence in the church is to God's glory. Our faith is a gift. Our perseverance is a gift. Our life is a gift. And it ought to be our prayer for the church, for us to continue to speak as Elijah did, to continue to live with many others in these equally dark times, to trust that God will protect his church and build his church for his glory and for the good of the world. Well, let's pray that he will. Let's turn to him now. Our Father in heaven, you have given your Son an inheritance, inheritance of the nations, inheritance of peoples, from every tongue, tribe, and nation. We are part of that inheritance, and we pray, O Lord, that we would call others Call others to consider their need and your provision. Lord, in our weakness, we ask for your help to be strong in speech, to be wise in our ways, to be patient in our relationship building. Help us, Lord, to point people to you and not to be discouraged to know that you are building your church. May we exert effort to that end 
entrusting all of our efforts to you, that you might use them to your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.